VFX show. I am Mike Seymour. Episode 204, Spectre. Yes, we're ding da ding da ding da ding ding with Bond um, as he uh, returns in what should be possibly the last of the uh, of the current run of Bond. Um, speaking about people licensed to uh, criticize, <laughs> I'm joined by Matt Whalen. How are you, Matt? I'm good. I'm I'm uh, I'm ready to criticize. No, I'm ready to praise. I'm ready to uh, whatever. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and we're also joined by our producer, Todd. Now, Todd have not been on the show before, but I should point out for those of you who don't know, Todd has been a vital part of the show for many years, and uh, we are incredibly glad to have him actually on the show. Todd, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Mike. Hi, so, Matt. Todd, welcome. So awesome to have you actually on the show. It's so cool. Yes, so those of you that listen to the show to the end, um, most of the time, not, not, as, not as often as I should, um, I point out that uh, um, Todd produces the show. Um, he actually has a day job uh, that does other things, but he's been helping us out, and we really appreciate it. So it's terrific um, to have him on the show, and Todd is going to be finishing up with the show. We thought no better way to say thank you for all the uh, great work that Todd's been doing uh, than to actually have him on the show. So we're very glad to have you on, and if you're really good, we're just going to insist on you coming back. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so, uh, as part of your day job, um, you are involved in uh, serious uh, law enforcement. So, you know, feel free to sort of jump in here with anything that might uh, influence us in terms of the realism of what's going on here, as you're about the only person I know that would actually have any real idea as to the realism of uh, some of the uh, aspects of uh, what's going on in this, though none of it is particularly based in realism, as we have to confess. So it's all Bond. Hey, um, so guys, before we get into the visual effects, as we like to do, we're going to run through just what we thought of the film. And Todd, are you a, a Bond fan? Yes, uh, very much like the uh, the latest series with uh, the current actor. I think it's the best Bond movies that have ever been done. Well, Daniel Craig is good, but I've, I mean, there's something to be said about whichever was the first Bond you knew, right? It's a bit like Doctor Who, whichever was the one that when you were the formative teenage years is the one that you tend to like. Now, in my case, that would be Roger Moore, and, and I'm told that that's incredibly <laughs> uncool. Um, but, but, you know, hey. So uncool. Yes, I know. Yes. It did get very um, uh, pantomime in his day. But, you know, I still remember seeing The Spy Love Me when the car went in the water and thinking, oh, my God, oh, that's so cool. But then I was, you know, a prepubescent boy just keen to see Bond girls. Hey, Matt, what do you think of the film? So I, you know, it's so funny. I, I've, I've been, uh, I, I really was excited to, well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I wasn't, I wasn't excited to go see it, but I wasn't... Um, it, it was sort of like, oh, that, that'll be cool. Yeah, another Bond. You know, I mean, it's the twenty fourth uh, James Bond movie, if I'm not mistaken. So it's, you know, we've seen. It, it's definitely a, a very well established uh, a character and franchise. And I definitely enjoyed the last couple of um, Daniel Craig Bond films, especially the. Uh, I think it was because was it? Yeah, Skyfall. The, yeah, the Skyfall Roger, was the, the, the Deacons. Roger yeah. Deakins. I mean, it's uh, anything that he shoots. I just, Why didn't he get an Oscar for that? I do not know. I just, yeah, I'll, I don't even. I can't even go there. It's yeah. like a, a dark, dark, uh, dark stain on the, uh, <laughs> the on Oscar. the lens cap of the Oscars. Yes, on the indubitably. But yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I was reading some of like different after I saw it. I was reading different like sort of commentary from you know friends and different you know websites that I follow and stuff. And it's really it's gotten from people that uh, I normally kind of follow, it's gotten kind of mixed reviews, but I thought that was kind of odd because I went and saw it with my wife one day while my, um, my son was at school and, and 
we loved it. We both loved it. I thought it was so much fun. It's such a um, kind of fun ride. It's probably the the lightest touch, I think, of the Daniel Craig films. And it really felt like kind of a throwback to me in some ways to some of those movies. Like I grew up in the Roger Moore era too. And it had more of that kind of tongue and cheeky kind of humor um, that I think some of the other earlier Bond films had. And I actually really enjoy that kind of component in the movies. I know a lot of people like the real kind of brooding, serious uh, Bonds. And, and those are fun too. But I thought this was kind of a nice departure from that. And I, I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I I, I definitely got my... Um, my uh, money's worth. See, you know, when you said throwback, I thought you were going to say throwback to Austin Powers. Todd, did you have any Austin <laughs> Powers kind of flashbacks during this film? Because I did. Uh, no, I didn't. I, I actually saw it as a relatively serious film. Uh, so, I mean, I went into it after, again, reading some reviews where they really criticized the ending of the movie. Uh, knowing that, plus uh, Daniel Craig's... Uh, very outspoken about how much he doesn't want to do James Bond anymore yeah, and how just, you know, he, he's just his general demeanor about the film was very negative. So I actually saw the film today. And when I sat down in the theater with the other seven or eight people uh, that were there, cause it was a four o'clock showing, I had very low expectations of the film. Um, I knew very little about it. Uh, I knew a couple basic set pieces of it, uh, but once the movie started, I really got into it, and I enjoyed it from the beginning to the end, uh, including the end, uh, which I kept waiting for the – where's the bad part? Where's the, where's the part where everybody was so upset that you know how the movie ended? Um, and, and it just depends on what you're looking for in the film, but I personally uh, enjoyed it from start to finish. Um, so that's I do enjoy the James Bond movies, so I, I, I got a lot of enjoyment out of this one. Okay, so my criticism of it is um, that given that it's been done in the shadow of like an Austin Powers universe, the, uh, the whole like, you know, Dr. Evil touches of the white cat... Um, hey, I've got a gun. I'm, let's just shoot him. No, no, let's not do that. Let's come up with some incredibly complicated and, and senselessly bizarre way to try and kill him with a robot-controlled apparatus that's been designed presumably specifically for torturing somebody like this in an environment that will allow him to somehow escape. Wait, wait, there's his girlfriend. We'll let him just kiss her because that doesn't open up any opportunity and then and then if that wasn't bad enough it's like okay so now i've got you exactly where i want you contained in the bottom of a building you know behind bulletproof glass and i'm going to leave you with three and a half minutes to survive because that way i won't know if you survive or not but uh but it seems to give you a good sporting chance bond i mean it's just like it's like what (laughs) it was uh, i I think you're totally right i mean it, it reminds me mostly of um but in a way that I still think is kind of cool, it reminded me mostly of uh, what was the the one from Roger Moore, The Spy Who Loved Me. Spy it has me, yeah. all it has all those same um, kind of components in it. And you're right; it's it's hard to make a Bond film with some of the classic Bond elements of like you know Blofeld and the the cat and all that stuff, and not think now of Austin Powers, which speaks to what a great parody Austin Powers is of that whole franchise. But I don't know; I somehow it. it I, I, you think of those things. I mean, I found myself thinking of that stuff a little bit in the film, but I still, I still was, I still could let go enough to kind of suspend my disbelief and kind of get into the zone. Yeah, I felt a little bit like. I mean, I enjoyed it. It was fun, right? But I felt a little bit like they were doing, um, 
you know, they were slipping back into old habits. Because, I mean, while it's good to have um, a car that shoots out, you know, uh, flames from the back of the car <laughs> and is, you know, incredibly sporty looking like that car was, it had that traditional um, sense of now we're going to have a gratuitous car race with gadgets. And when that's over, we'll just get back to the story, which is what I always didn't like had happened before and what they kind of got out of. And in fact, I would go further and I'd say, if you look at the comparison to um, the Mission Impossible franchise, they developed that on and started having things not quite always working and being a bit more um, like he couldn't work out everything out and everything wouldn't always work and there'd be periods where things wouldn't kind of come and happen, which I always thought was an improvement on that franchise. But in this one, we've started to go the other way, which is, you know, wisecracking um, uh, sort of things and, and just odd sort of, I'm going to let somebody get on a cable car just like Roger Moore did when Jaws, you know, bit through the cable for no apparent reason <laughs> and then nothing happened and then the cable car, you know, it was just like, what? Like, this is just, you've just set up a completely piece of action for second unit that just isn't actually related to the story. Like, Bond goes to somewhere where the evil Spectre people are so that he can escape from the evil Spectre people and have a car chase. I mean, there was like nothing else going on there, right? It was like... <laughs> You managed to infiltrate the most top secret Spectre thing in the world. What a shame you didn't have backup, any other help, proof, anything, cameras, take their photos, <laughs> record any aspect about it that would help. The, no, we're just going to then jump in a car and escape from, you know, 1,200 of the world's most lethal assassins and no one's going to put a finger on you and then we'll destroy the car and you'll go into a new one. I was like, really? Having said that, <laughs> if you totally get into that kind of Bond stuff, um, then as we move now to the visual effects, I would say that the visual effects were really, really good. Um, so, so, Todd, just from a visual effects point of view, did, uh, did you feel like the film delivered in terms of... Um, obviously fairly realistic in the sense that it was not meant to look like it was comical uh, visual effects. Yeah, I, I had the advantage of going to the film, having not had a chance to read the FX guide article first. Uh, so when I went to see the film today, I, I really, I knew about a couple set pieces, but uh, I wasn't sure what was going to be visual effects and what, what weren't going to be uh, visual effects scenes. Right from the get-go when they had the – I guess it's a six- or seven-minute-long one-continuous camera shot, uh, very Birdman-like. Uh, at the beginning, I began to kind of come out of the film and begin to look for how they cut that all together, and, and I really couldn't figure it out. I, I thought that was very well done. Uh, when we got f into the helicopter, and the only thing that I saw from a visual effects standpoint – uh, really bothered me uh, was when they were in the helicopter and the helicopter was spinning around. It, yep. it felt very much like it was on a soundstage. The, the lighting didn't seem quite right inside the helicopter versus what was outside. And the background plate with the buildings as the as the helicopter is spinning around, there was something – I'm not sh I'm not able to really tell what, what it was that didn't seem right. Maybe it was the motion blur um, or, or what. But – I noticed it more. It it it, it seemed like the, the the plate and the interior uh, of the helicopter weren't matching. Um, you know, Matt, that was the first part of it that I I noticed that bothered me. Matt, do you think that was our uh, internal external exposure problem that we've talked about in cars? Where outside, yeah, I mean, matching? it felt it felt like that. I mean, it 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 definitely had. I mean, those are 
it's so it's great that you mentioned those, Todd, because I, I feel like that's exactly for pretty much every other effect in the movie. At least that it, it, in in my viewing of it, I feel like everything else was was really pretty sound. I mean, it was pretty solid, and that opening sequence is so great. I love that opening sequence. I love the the costuming, the the set design, the the conceit, the concept of what's going on, um, and in the location, Mexico City. I mean, it's it's just there's so much great stuff in that. And then you get into the interior space in that helicopter, and it's the classic, you know car on the road uh kind of compositing problem and i'm i just it's like it, it it took me out of the movie even it was so bad it was it was unfortunate it's the one and it, it i couldn't I, I couldn't uh it was the one thing i couldn't forget either it stuck out so blatantly so yeah but it's like it is it's that classic problem we've talked about it so many times on the show and it's you know I, I don't know what you could really say about it other than it's just yeah. they were I mean, I mean, the crowds I thought were pretty good, right? They had 2,500 actual extras. They made it look like about 25,000 or, or so people. And I thought the crowd stuff worked well on the ground. I thought the... Oh, I did too. I thought, I thought all the digital, the digital doubles and the uh, motion-captured people that they had inserted into the larger crowd. Um, and I, I know they talked about, uh, you know, they had a, a, so many takes where people would sort of look at the camera. And so they did some kind of, you know, face replacements and adjustments on some people. And I thought that stuff was phenomenal. And you have that one huge crowd scene. That's the vista of that whole, um, the whole sort of uh, plaza there. And, uh, it, it was really great. And the way that they were able to get those people to kind of interact with, um, what was happening in terms of uh, the action in the scene and get the digital doubles kind of lined up in the scene. It, it really was great. It was seamless and it felt like there was some real, um, some real peril uh, during the sort of, you know, when the helicopter starts kind of, you know, taking off and, you know, zooming yeah. around, you felt like there was really some additional level of jeopardy at play with all those people underneath. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that was ILM, right? Who did the uh, helicopter environments uh, like background plates and then the, you know, the gimbal stuff. And Daniel Craig apparently was not in a good state to do all of that stuff. So they had to put a digital double in. And there's more about that in our FX Guide story. I mean, I think the, you're right, the, the art direction of it. I mean, I was reminded of uh, Live and Let Die. Though mm -hmm. I, would, I would have loved if the soundtrack of this film had a Live and Let Die level song instead of whatever it was that I was listening to at the start of this film, which was apparently yeah. <laughs> not designed to appeal to someone like me. Um, but, but the, well, they're always kind of hit and miss. You can't, yeah. every song can't be a hit. It's every, like, everyone can't be Goldfinger, but yeah, no, but live and let die was particularly good. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, I thought that was good, but, uh, you're right. The, the helicopter just seemed kind of odd. I'm wondering about this, like there seems to be, um, a pattern here that they're trying to do as much as they can in camera. Um, and you know, you can't do everything in camera because it's just literally not safe to have a crowd on the ground with a helicopter doing that kind of stunt work but if we contrast that for a second with the enormous explosion that happened um of the whatever it was moroccan communications facility um which okay i'm just going to say this like why did a place that have that much solar panels and that much sort of communications focus need to have that much explosive petrol all around the <laughs> compound in such a way that it would you know, I mean, did they, they actually blew it up for real with eight, over 8,000 litres of kerosene and 24 charges with a kilogram of high explosives. So that's the kind of stuff 
that you would need it to have had at the actual base to cause it to blow up like that, which I'd never really understood because of all that solar panels, why they needed that. Anyway, leaving that aside for a second, they actually blew it up. It's the world record for the biggest yeah, the kind of, book of world records, yeah, yeah. for the biggest <laughs> contribution to greenhouse gases by a single Bond film. But um, <laughs> the thing is, Todd, do we think that shot like was worth it to do in one take? I mean, you had like one camera on it, right? They walked up. They did a couple of dry takes in case it didn't work, and then they just got it in one shot. Yeah, I was kind of shocked. I mean, I knew that he had shot the, uh, I guess, the pipe or the the valves, which set off a small explosion right before they were able to make their way out of the uh, facility. But it, it, it's almost like they paused up there and were like, okay, any time now. And then they turn to the right or whatever, and they look, and the explosion goes off. And it just, it almost seemed... Like you said, it's very much out of place, and it was so big, and it was, uh, it almost seemed, um, it was a thing balanced itself, on each right? each it's, side. Yeah. yeah, it was balanced on each side, so like yep. it, it blew up you know, big yep. in the middle, and and it was yeah very symmetrical in its design. And I thought, what would do that, and why if they have what look like solar observatories yep. or or why are they exploding and and it didn't make any sense yes it was a fantastic explosion um but i just it, again we talk about uh, you know being in the movie or coming out of the movie I, it just i didn't understand why that had happened and there was this disconnect um but it was like you said it was the biggest explosion ever caught on film for a for a film um you know it, it, very spectacular i just from a story point i don't other than, you know, okay, so saying the place has been destroyed. I just don't understand exactly. why they did it. Let me contrast that with, um, with Matt, one of the greatest films of all time, the Batman franchise, where, um, <laughs> where Ledger mm-hmm. is walking away from the hospital and they, they're meant to go on 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and Ledger ad-libs trying to press the button at 4 and at 3 and shakes it so that at 1 it actually goes off. Now, that was also a fairly gratuitous blowing up of a large building for mm-hmm. no apparent reason but in that case i thought it was a magnificent piece of cinema and it was the same thing you've got the actor in camera you got one take but they he just sold it so well whereas i think todd's on the money this this felt staged what do you reckon yeah i mean i would agree i mean i you know it's funny you, you bring up um the uh masterpiece the Your batman movies only because uh i did have a theory that i was going to throw out there which was that the people who really didn't like this bond movie are the people who love the Dark Knight trilogy and the people who uh, did like this one are probably, you know, it's sort of the difference between the DC and Marvel universe. This was the Marvel uh, James Bond as opposed to the DC James Bond. Um, But yeah, no, I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of game for James Bond as superhero. I don't know that I need him to be like super gritty and real. I think that's an interesting approach, but I'm, I'm happy to see the superhero James Bond version as well, which I think is sort of what we got in this film. I mean, the Bourne identity uh, provided that, didn't it? The Bourne identity provided the gritty Bond. Cause that, that is totally, what he is. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think even the last couple Daniel Craig movies are, are kind of the grittier. Uh, well, the first Bond. one had that black and white sequence. Remember? 
Yeah, 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 totally. And this one just felt like it was going back to kind of yeah. some of the more you know traditional tropes of the of the franchise. And but I, you know, in terms of the big explosion, yeah, I, I would agree with you guys. I think it you know it definitely felt like a really staged thing, and it didn't make sense that the whole base would blow up. I sort of interpreted the base blowing up as being almost like a some weird like self destruct thing. You know, like it just seems so absurd that it would be. Right that one incident that would cause this massive chain reaction that would create this perfectly symmetrical explosion. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. Uh, it was beautiful. I, I love seeing it on the big screen. It was really fun to, you know, just to sort of uh, gawk at, but um, yeah, I mean, this one story wise, script wise and story wise, it's, it's thin, it's thinner than the, than the previous ones. Yeah, with see, I'm not, I'm not really needing that the plot to be necessarily really complicated. Like it's just, you know, the, when, like when he's escaping. The logic. This, well, no, but it's just when he's escaping in the sequence, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, there are like eight henchmen that come out and he's just had drills put into his brain and he manages to be a perfect marksman and take them all out. I mean, <laughs> Todd, maybe these guys need, you know, to spend some time on a, on a rifle practice range or something, but the henchmen seemed <laughs> incredibly inept. Yeah, I, I thought for a second they were working with uh, the stormtroopers because they, <laughs> you know, in the, in the Star Wars movies, they can't hit anybody, but as soon as they stand up, they're shot and knocked over. But uh, <laughs> Star Trek security too. officers. When they got to the Yes, exactly. Uh, red shirts. I thought as soon as they got to that top of the landing away from you know, the, the, the guys that he had just shot and they get up there and they, right before the explosion that I was waiting for the next chase to begin, that somehow they were, there was going to be a across the desert type chase or, or something where that was going to be the finale. That's where Bond and the, uh, uh, his adversary were going to go at it. And, and that's where the movie would end. And, and instead the place blows up, they go to the next scene and now they're, you know, they're, elsewhere they're back in london i believe um so I, I i just again surprised that the the place blew up like you said self-destruct I, I don't know but uh, very much like okay I, I, why did that happen yeah now now you see here's the thing right like it's not that it's the worst film ever or, or whatever it's just that in my opinion you get judged in a franchise by what the films that come either side of it, you know what I mean? And so in this case, I'm judging it harshly because I enjoyed the other one so much. I didn't enjoy the title of the film, A Quantum of Solace, but then no one did. But apart from that, like I like the films, Casino Royale, you know, like the, mm -hmm. the defibrillator in his car. I like, you know, like a lot of the things that happened, um, the uh, Venice building collapse where he loses the girl in the water. It was all like really good stuff. Um, and in this film, most of the stuff is really good. Like when you've got that plane, let's, let's talk about that for a second in Austria and he's attacking mm -hmm. the guys in the car with a plane. I mean, it seems fairly improbable that one sort of, um, twin propeller jet, uh, twin propeller plane can take out, you know, a convoy of, uh, assassins in, uh, in four-wheel drives, but that's not the point. Like what the point is, you know, was it a, an effective action sequence and was there sort of an obvious, you know, thing and there was, and then they introduced the humor of him, you know, like sort of flying past in Roger Moore style without any wings kind of down the hill and, and into the building as he plans a perfect piece of mathematics to collide with the things coming out the other side. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the visual effects level, couldn't fault it. Like I didn't think that at any point it looked like a tacky miniature. Um, whereas if you go back to the Roger Moore era, and I'm now thinking about that cable car that goes through the... Um, 
the building just before Jaws meets the girlfriend. I mean, it just looked like a miniature. It just looked, yeah, you know, pretty mm-hmm. hokey. I tell you the other thing, by the way, just as an aside, in this film, it was a little <laughs> bit of it, but in the earlier Bond films, do you ever notice that in those action sequences, no one ever spoke because they couldn't do like... Yeah, um, they couldn't do any uh, any... Sync any sync sound with yeah. like lavalier mics or something, yeah. And so it'd be like you're going to get an action sequence, and there'd be like the occasional, uh, but that would be about it. And even those were pretty <laughs> rare. Most of the time it was just completely, almost like silent theater with, uh, with you know, bombs and rumbles, and and that was it. And it's still a little bit like that. You know, you get into these action sequences. I mean, Bond doesn't have any lines of dialogue anyway, right? Like, uh, but um, yeah. Anyway, so so that sequence where the plane is attacking the guys. The the point about comparing there, I think, is that that didn't have the same bad effect to me as the helicopter did. In other words, I wasn't looking right. at Bond and the car guys the whole time going, oh, my God, they've come this on a green screen. Right. I, I I didn't even think of that when I was watching the plane stuff. To me, it seemed like he was, I don't know, on set, maybe in some kind of a device or something, like a car almost underneath the plane and they're, you know, maybe moving it around, uh, actually on location. Um, that didn't really bother me at all. What, what bothered me was I knew that the wings were going to come off because everything from Indiana Jones, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, every movie I could think of that has had a plane that chases somebody, they slowly but surely bite off each part of the wing until there's nothing left but the fuselage. Um, so I kind of knew that was coming. So when it happened, it was like, okay, good, that's over. Now we can continue on. The, the thing that just – when they looked at that barn and you're looking at the other side and you see all that firewood stacked up and you're, you're thinking there's no way that plane's going to come through that, the whole barn, and then not just do a nosedive straight down to the ground. As soon as it hits that wood, it's going to come out and drop. But instead, he flies. <laughs> you know, He flies out of that building, which is just – I mean, again, it's a Bond film, so everything's improbable. But again, that it just seemed so impossible that uh, – I don't know. It – I had to laugh when I saw it. It just, it, uh, but again, that's a special effect more than it is a visual effect. Well, put it uh, this way: the but, Austrian building that they left, you know, the uh, Swans Medical Clinic, like mm-hmm, that didn't look. Mm-hmm. I mean, that looked like, to a certain extent, a set piece in the sense that, like, it didn't look like a normal office. It looked like a, you know, an elaborate thing. But it didn't feel soundstagey the way that it obviously was. I mean, there was a CG building wrapped around the, the stuff that right. they had there, and they had translights outside. So that kind of worked. Um, okay. Right. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, it's just a fine line, I guess, isn't it? It's like, what takes you out of the film? And we, I certainly, you guys maybe less so, keep on coming out of the film when somebody does something just so absurd that I find it like hard to kind of take seriously. And, and, and I get that, you know, any, I mean, look, honestly, if I fell over walking up the hallway, I'd probably need to go and see a, you know, a, a medical center. <laughs> you know, Bond can like fall out of a plane, smash through a building and land in a volcano and like just has to dust himself off. So... Um, but nevertheless, it's, you know, there's some point at which you go, uh, is it serving the purpose of the film? And that's, after all, I think what our critique should be centered on is like, when does the visual effects not serve the the purpose of the film in terms of yeah, storytelling? Yeah, but I, I mean, I, I'm, I, I agree, but I also do think that, I think that the, the James Bond franchise of movies is kind of a, a unique case in a sense too, in that, I, I mean, it's, it has a broad cross-cultural appeal as a character and as a, as a, a narrative uh, structure, this idea of this kind of super spy and, you know, the gadgets and the, the insane stunts, the locations. And there's all these kind of things that you sort of, 
at, at least for me as a fan, you know, if I'm going to go see a Bond film, there's certain check boxes that I kind of want to. Yeah, you, you, you need know, a car chase. I, there's expectations. Yeah, there's there's got to be a car chase. There's got to be a cool gadget. There's got to be, you know, a cool Bond girl. There's got to be like some insane stunts. There's got to be exotic locations like that I couldn't imagine going to. And just some something totally improbable. And I think that that um, – for me, it was that it was that airplane, <laughs> you know, uh, the idea of chasing a, a, a convoy of vehicles with an airplane, for one, is just, you know, it's absurd. But that chase and then, yeah, crashing through the barn and then he's like, you know, riding down, you know, in just the, you know, the engines and the clipped wings, like uh, in the snow, like a big sled. Yeah, and the perfect math that you say, you know, to crash right into the vehicle. I mean, it's it's absurd, but it but it's but it's kind of rad, you know, like as a as a thing, it's so uh, over the top. Like, yeah, you know, so, I mean, I'm I'm with you on some of that. As I say, like I liked that our villain ended up with a scar across his face with an you know an eye looking like he looked like mm-hmm. a really good kind of villain, and uh, but you know, I, I agree. It's just that. It, Austin Powers did some of these things so well in parody that when I see them sort of done not in parody, I'm like, you're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. Well, that. well, go, I mean, you know, not to get too sidetracked here, but go back and watch uh, The Spy Who Loved Me oh, and watch the so, opening, yeah. the opening sequence in that where he's, uh, Roger Moore is in the, the cabin in the same kind of environment, like in the Alps or something in, in uh, Switzerland or something. And he's, he gets a call on his watch and it comes out of his watch, like a, um, one of those, uh, you know, dynamo uh, ticker types. Yeah. 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 And he's got to go back to headquarters and he, he gets on his ski suit with this, uh, like yellow ski suit, bright yellow with this bright red, uh, ski boots and backpack. And he looks like Ronald McDonald, like skiing down the mountain. <laughs> Having face. said that as a school, Oh boy, when the shoot <laughs> opens, we were just oh, yeah, cheering. And the, yeah, and the and the uh, the British flag or whatever. Yeah, the, uh, and uh, it was so great though. Like there's there's shots of Roger Moore leaning back over and looking over his shoulder to see uh, the sort of henchmen chasing him down on skis, and it is the worst rear projection. I mean, it's kind of almost perfect, you know. Like it's sort of it echoes. <laughs> I don't know. It was it's. It just seems like that's part of the deal. Well, know? let's that's talk about technical quality for a second because some of this was shot on the Alexa 65, which is a astonishing piece of cinematography equipment. Um, and the Alexa 65 uh, is clearly a large format camera that is producing spectacularly good digital imagery. The Alexa is a good camera to start with, let alone like a, a 6K version of it. Uh, Matt, did you technically find this film looking really, really good? I mean, I was going to set this up by saying I was really worried in that opening sequence that the whole film would be done in monochrome browns and yellows and and uh, we were in for like a sort of a noirish kind of tint, but that seemed to go away after a while. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I thought it had a really nice, a nice clean look. I mean, I, I, you know, I think for me, like I alluded to earlier, like it's, it, it's hard to go back after the, I think the really one of the most beautiful, if not the most beautifully photographed Bond film was Skyfall, in my yeah. opinion. It's kind of hard to to depart from that. Just the the, the sense of um, lighting and composition in that film is so potent, and it tells such a kind of uh, powerful 
it creates such a powerful sort of sense of atmosphere and stuff. It's, I mean, it's just gorgeous. And this film, uh, certainly doesn't look bad, uh, for me. I thought it, it, it looked great. I mean, I, format wise, I didn't notice, uh, one of the, who was I talking to on, uh, online? Uh, I think one of our, a friend of the show, I should go back and look, but was concerned. I think worked on the film. I was concerned that some of the stuff might look soft, uh, in particular, if, if uh, in IMAX, I guess it was projected in IMAX and a few. I saw locales. it on a large screen digital. Todd, what did you see it on? I, di- I didn't see an IMAX. I saw it large screen digital. Yeah, we have a DLP projection cinema, uh, and that's what I watched it on. It was a very large cinema. It's the biggest one in the movie house we have. The problem I had with mine was the sound was just off a little mm-hmm. bit, so the sound was a little bit before their lips would move. For I know. example. Yeah, like uh, a tenth of a second. But it was because I watched so many movies, it was very noticeable. Um, so anytime they had a uh, medium or close-up shot of dialogue, it was extremely obvious. Um, and it was especially noticeable at the beginning part of the film. Um, I, maybe I just kind of lost track of it later on in the film and just accepted it. Um, but uh, that was really uh, problematic in watching the film. Uh, but I, I saw it on a DLP projector, and it was uh, the sound was incredible. Uh, it, it was really a, otherwise a great uh, experience to watch it. Uh, but I didn't notice anything that was soft. I actually thought the the images were excellent. I didn't like the grading at the beginning, or maybe how it was yeah. lit. I thought very contrasty. Uh, I couldn't see into the shadows much at all. Um, there was one thing where I think he was walking up to a doorway on a porch or something, and and I could barely see what was going on uh, where where the, uh, where Daniel Craig was. It was that uh, that much in shadow, and it was there's just no detail. And it got better as the film went on. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a definite look on that opening sequence. I was worried we were going to get that the whole way through, and we didn't. But um, yeah. Yeah, I thought it looked really good. I mean, I, I didn't have any real issues with it. It was Nick uh, Lambert that I was talking to online right. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, did, anyone it, else you... have, did anyone else have any... Okay, sorry, just to do an aside. Anyone else have a slight problem with Bond going to bed with a girl who's just come from a funeral of her husband that he'd killed? Like, isn't that like, it's like a little tasteless? <laughs> it's like, I'm just going to kill your husband and then I'm going to have sex with you. Oh, oh the, Monica, you. the Monica Bellucci. Uh, is that who that was? Uh, I guess... Uh, yeah, you got me on that. I don't know. Uh, hang on, I can check that out. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I, I sort of had the impression that she was sort of trapped in, you know, like it was like he because he was some bad dude, right? And it was like it, you didn't. I didn't get the impression that like her uh, mourning for her husband was anything more than just a, a recognition of the fact that that meant that her number was up. You know, like it, it didn't seem like it was a a real love match between the two. That was my interpretation of it anyway. Well, speaking of love matches, what do we think about the uh, visual effects fight sequence in the train, the train that they pretty much uh, single-handedly destroyed before um, uh, having another romp in the train? It was awesome. I just I just wish there had been more of an opportunity for, um, what's that actor's name, The uh, Dave Bautista, to just have a little bit more. He doesn't speak in the whole movie, right? And he kind of... Crushes he, a couple of skulls. Yeah, I just wanted more of him. He's so charismatic, and he's—I think he's a really—or uh, he, he showed himself to be a pretty interesting actor in certainly in Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Guardians, and, he was magnificent. 
I just wanted more of him. I thought he he had the all the trappings of a great classic Bond heavy like Jaws. villain, like yeah. a Jaws. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can either can either of you tell me what he said right before he flew out of the train? Did he say that's cute or? No, I thought he was again, like a bugger or something, wasn't it? I, I couldn't I couldn't tell I because again my sound was off and his lips weren't moving at the same time he was speaking. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst. So yeah. I um I I couldn't tell and it's like oh I should have heard that as he flies out of the train. Um, it was something and, like and that, oh no or like oh bugger or something like that and then he gets yeah. it's a realization that he's in trouble. Yeah. Okay. I just, I, I was like, oh man, I wish I knew what he just said, but oh well, he's he's gone. The, the ultimate um, WWE SmackDown. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talked earlier about you know Bond. You, you fall. You, you would have to go to the hospital if you, you fell walking down the hallway. Here, Bond's <laughs> being thrown through wall yeah, yeah. after wall after. I mean, just windows smashing, and he's not cut. He's not. I don't know. Maybe he's got a couple brush burns or something. But he just you know he basically continues on as if nothing has happened and. I'm just thinking, my gosh, he's destroying this train. And I know I came home from that film, and I was making a margarita, and I, and I had a slight nick in my finger, like a slight one. And then the lime juice got in, and I was like, "Oh, that hurts so much!" I'm like, <laughs> right, note to self: don't tell anyone that story. Um, <laughs> but seriously, lime juice really hurts in a small cut in your finger. But um, yes, no, it's true. They uh, they're fairly indestructible, those lads. Um, no, I thought he was great, and I totally agree. We we could have seen more of him. I thought the train just felt a bit balsa woody, um, and I'm wondering. Yes. Like, I think we're actually on the verge, and the reason I bring this up, I think we're actually on the verge of, we want to do it in camera so much that we run the risk of actually getting stuff no longer looking quite as good as we can get it, because we're so desperate to do it in camera, because somehow it's perceived that things are better in camera, though I honestly don't think they necessarily are, because there are a lot of miniatures in earlier Bond films that looked hopelessly like miniatures. Um, sure. And uh, and didn't sell at all. I think a hybrid is best, and a hybrid when it's, you know, because yeah. that explosion really said to me, we just want to do that for the PR value, for the social media value of saying we did not one take and it was the Guinness Book of Records, right? It was, like a, it was like a marketing exercise in the film more than this is the most effective way to having the most, you know, the coolest explosion. Because we can do really sure. sims of explosions like that, right? I mean, they wanted to just have the B-roll of it happening while people were standing there going, God, isn't that cool? Um, Todd, you can tell us this is a, a really expensive film, isn't it? Like in terms of budget, uh, yes, uh, I believe it was two hundred and fifty to three hundred million dollars. Depends on which uh, story you read. Uh, Box Office Mojo is saying about two hundred and forty-five million, but uh, some of the articles that I read and put in the dossier were saying upwards of three hundred million. Now, I checked before we came in to start the show today, and worldwide they've already made half a billion dollars, so they've covered their expenses. And if well, actually, publicity, they, they, I don't know. So that's an interesting question, though, whether they have, because in fact half of the box office take is going to go to the um, to the cinema chains themselves. Though they'll okay. make it all back in TV and and DVDs and whatever else. But you would have to make a lot of money on a nearly two hundred fifty million dollar film to clear a serious profit. Like that's a astonishing budget, isn't it? Yeah. Do, do and. Yeah, I would think so. And, and don't do you guys remember when a hundred million dollars to do Titanic was considered preposterous and a huge waste of sure. money? Uh, I mean, that was. I remember when that film was being made, that the idea that somebody would even think to make a hundred million dollar movie, um, if I recall correctly, that was the budget uh, at the time. Yeah, I think that I think uh, that's right. And yeah. now we're up to three times that amount, or nearly three times that amount. 
Um, and we're not talking and, about and, I mean, a they, period of massive inflation where, you know, it's been like 10, 12, 20% inflation. Like, inflation's running pretty low. This is, this is not just a fiscal inflation of the budget. This is an actual inflation of the budget. But you also have a much greater global distribution and, uh, you know, there's so many more cinemas now uh, in in China, just for example, than yeah, there no. was at, in the era of Titanic. I mean, it's it's. I think it's a much bigger – there's a much bigger potential draw. And so the investment, uh, you know, while that's still a huge amount of money, it's it's not as risky to invest that money. And, and movies like Titanic and Avatar and stuff, they come along and they prove – you know, they're the exception that that breaks the rule, right? Except for in the case that. of both of those films, they mm. were non-sequel, non-franchise films. Where this That's was like, this is one of the biggest franchises in movie history, right? Yeah, this is the film that kind mm-hmm. of defined the idea of a franchise. The very fact that they can swap out the lead yeah, actor. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Um, yeah, I know. I just feel like, uh, yeah, I mean, it was like a lot of money, and and I'm sure that a lot of people, you know earned their money, but it's going to need to make a ton to return any kind of serious investment to the studios. Um, and you want the Bond films to inter- return serious money because you want money in the kitty for those other films, right? That are the films mm-hmm. that are the $30 million right. films, the $45 million films that we all... Do they still make those? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, uh, they should, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But I mean, putting all your eggs in one... But I mean, also, if this film had failed for some reason, and look... Had there been, I don't know, uh, a terrorist bombing of a Mexican festival, something, you know, like ghastly that just totally echoed with the film and it was suddenly super tasteless or something. I mean, there's not, I guess they're insurance for that, but it's still something that goes wrong. Well, probably a better example would be if Daniel, um, the, the actor, does something in his private life that makes him unpopular because I mean, there was a period where we wouldn't have thought that Mel Gibson could have been anything but box office, um, mm. you know, success. And, and he's completely box office poison, uh, following, you know, some pretty outlandish stuff. And those, there's, you know, huge single pitch bets are good for visual effects in one sense, because of course, you know, it means a lot of money for filmmaking and employing people, but by the same token, I just would like to see the love spread around a bit. Um, this was, uh, Todd, you want to give us a rundown? Who was the effects companies on this? So okay. I, mentioned ILM, <laughs> I, I mentioned ILM already, right? Um, right. Yeah. And, and this is is not a complete list, but yeah, we have ILM, uh, Double Negative, MPC, Blue Bolt, Cinesite, and Peerless were the ones uh, that I had in the dossier. And I, and I believe there were a couple of other small companies as well, but uh those were the primary yeah. ones, I believe. Yeah, yeah ILM did that uh, that earlier stuff, and the um, the, uh, the the there was other work put in. I think Dwight on the helicopter as well, so it wasn't just ILM on that earlier sequence I was referring to earlier. Um, and yeah, you're right. And, and some of those uh, effects, I think you mentioned them, um, like uh, Peerless, and people were doing like a lot of invisible work. Yeah. You know, stuff that you wouldn't really sort of uh, know what they were. And there's going to be, obviously, safety lines and various bits and things removed and, and stuff done that would typically uh, be put together. The um, example of that, I think, is the uh, the Whitehall shot, um, which was, I think, done in flame, actually, as it, as it turned out, um, rather than as a CG model, even. Um, mm. So uh, where to from here, do we think? Like, do we... Do we th- you know, I've been talking about this uh, today with you guys a bit, this idea of practical effects versus uh, visual effects, this, this idea of trying to do it in camera. Do, you know, like if you were 
um, going to a meeting for the sequel to this film, do you think that there's a real need for an audience to know that there was stuff done in camera? Um, Because there was a point in the Bond films that, you know, they actually had a Mercedes on top of a cliff top and they'd kick an actual Mercedes off. And then in one of the films, I can't remember which Bond film it was, I remember he surfed down a a tsunami effectively using a sort of door off a car and a (laughs) parachute. And I remember it was like really obviously digital and it felt like they'd (laughs) gone to an absurd place. Um, Yeah. (laughs) This one I don't think does the absurd place stuff. I don't think any of the things we've discussed are really absurd. Like it's not like, you know, he's single-handedly holding a 747 from taking off, anything that would be superhero department. But, you know, there is still this uh, overarching kind of we've clearly done some of this stuff in camera so we can show you that we did it in camera. Not well, I think, that, I think that's sort of part of the, the kind of popular trend at the moment. You know, uh, we've talked a little bit about this in the past, but there's been kind of that at least, you know, Internet sort of backlash on, you know, films that are sort of just over the top CG and, you know, the way the people in in popular media, the way people kind of talk about, you know, um, make these, I think, absurd claims that, you know, CGI's ruin movies, but, well, at the same time, to- they're totally ignorant of, like, how much CG is in every movie, right? Um, and so I think there's kind of this balance that productions want to strike, too, where they can say, hey, we really did this thing for real, but then everything that they are doing for real is always being augmented simultaneously with visual effects that are invisible. And so uh, I think that, you know, it's a combination of the two things coming together in an interesting way that sometimes uh, benefits the overall effect. And like, I think you're suggesting Mike in something like that train sequence where maybe they're doing it just to do it in camera and it maybe doesn't look as good as it could. You know, it's a a delicate balance and and finding filmmakers and production teams that are going to be able to um, utilize those tools in an appropriate fashion to really achieve the look and the aesthetic that really is the most bang for their buck is going to take some time, I think, to hammer out. I think, you know, certainly, um, you know, the, the forthcoming, uh, JJ Abrams, uh, epic, uh, Star Wars movie seems like they, they've made a lot of PR, statements about how much stuff is done practically we built these sets we actually built these you know environments and whatnot and so it's kind of focusing on some of those same elements but at the same time too (laughs) you know there's not a an ounce of doubt in my mind that uh you know it's going to have a massive shot count in terms of all the digital work i mean it's it just goes without saying oh i think there's a i think there's a whole yeah i don't even want to speculate yeah there's a whole thing sure Look, I've been discussing this. Sorry, Gunn. Oh, that's good. I was just going to say, you talk about the pushback from CGI. The whole reason was because of the prequel Star Wars movies. I mean, that's where there was nothing on set. Uh, You know, everything was blue screen. The actors had to act off of it. And I think, in my opinion, I think that's where most of the pushback has come from. And and I think that's why you talked about J.J. in the new Star Wars film. I'm sure that's why they're trying to get that out there as much as possible, that you know, the real sets are built. This is not all done on blue screen, that type of stuff. I think to kind of bring people back or maybe reassure other fans that, uh, I mean, maybe not the diehard Star Wars fans who would see anything, obviously. Uh, but I, I think that's one of the reasons they're doing it. To your question, Mike, about this, this movie going forward or the series going forward, whether 
it needs to be, uh, I forget how you phrased it, but the, what the uh, mostly shot in camera. The key, an example of that where I think it has to be is the, the car chase where they had the camera car going through the, the streets of Rome. And uh, you know, your article mentions it on FX side about the fact that they actually, not only was it a camera car, but they actually had a guy driving the car up on the roof of the car. That they had built these special cars and they had reinforced the cars and put the person who was driving the car up on top so that you don't have the same problem that we had with the helicopter shot, whereas you have Bond in a car, but the background doesn't look like he's in Rome. It looks like he's on a stage with you know Rome being uh, filled in in the background. And I think for this type of film where the location is one of the characters, obviously, um, a key character, um, you need to have that actor in a close-up, you know, in the car or in the street fighting or whatever, um, as much as possible in a real location uh, to tie all those things together. And I think you can use the CG and the other uh, visual effects, you know, sporadically like they had done in this film, uh, but you still have to have a sense of place. And um, we talked about it earlier. We had the Mexico City part where we felt we were there, but then the helicopter felt very much like they were not there. And uh, so – I think that in a film like this, where location is so important, I think you need to uh, make it uh, a character within the film. Um, and the car chase is just a great example of that, where I felt like I was – they were on the streets of Rome uh, for most of that. Obviously, there was a, a, a key part of that that was CG uh, when they were running down along the river. But the, the stuff through the streets and stuff felt very real. I mean, and it I looked awesome. Say, Those, yeah. That driving, the, that driving pod too. There's a picture of that that you guys have on your site that looks so sketchy. <laughs> the only thing I'd say though is that, like, seriously, like when I see those things, like racing through London or you know racing through uh, through Rome. Like, if you've ever been to Rome or London, like I can't get from like one place to. That's my criticism of the movie Twenty Four. They'd like in London the last series, and they'd be like, <laughs> "We're going to get to the other side of London in like ten minutes." Like, really? Because it's going to be like an hour. And yeah, yeah. you know, maybe take the tube. Um, if you want to hear more of a discussion about this idea of uh, old school versus new school, just a bit of a cross promotion, uh, on the uh, FX podcast, we have a uh, interview with our own Ian Fails, who's actually written a book called uh, Masters of FX, which is a forward uh, written for him by uh, Jim Cameron. And it actually covers a lot of those guys from Richard Edlund to uh, Paul Franklin, from like, you know, John Knoll to Rob Legato. With, um, Joe LaTerry, all of those guys, Dennis Murin, uh, are all in that. they all um, interviewed by uh, Ian, and it's uh, something that I, we discuss over the FX podcast. But apart from discussing the book that he's done, which is terrific, we also discuss the whole notion of uh, old school versus new school. Now, I was just curious to get your take on it because it's been something that we've been talking about here in the office uh, mm-hmm. a lot this week. Hey, um, so was there any shot that you just thought was magnificent just to, uh, as we like to do on the show, like a winning shot that you were like, man, that's cool. Let me give you one mm. way you think about it. For me, having criticized that uh, helicopter sequence, there was helicopter shots at the beginning uh, from another vantage point of a chopper on a wide shot. You know, you can see the people below, the choppers kind of flying over the square. And it was just so well done at that point. Like, we're not in the chopper now, which is the shots you're criticizing, it was mm-hmm. like exterior shots, that I remember thinking, man, they either had an enormous number of extras or they filmed on the actual event or... They, I don't know what they've done, but it was like it was like a definite moment where I went. There are three ways I can think of that you could do this, and I can't tell which of them they've gone with. Is it CG? Is it crowd replication? Is it an actual event? And they've stuck a chopper in. Do they get permission just to put a 
high-res camera on a roof for something? How do they do that? So, so as much as I agree with you guys on the interior chopper stuff, I actually thought the the opening sequence uh, with the chopper fight when we talk about a few of the shots just had a lot of bond type energy to them and those uh, roles that they were doing with the chopper um uh-huh. you know just seeing yeah, yeah. crowd threateningly uh you know what would happen in a fight sequence you're not going to be able to fly normally you're not going to be able to you know you'll be veering all over the place and uh it wasn't you know that those shots you see in movies where they've got a biplane or something that it's meant to be on fire and it's clearly just got a smoke bomb tied to one of the wings mm-hmm. and it just wobbles its wings a bit left and right and you go, yeah, that's not really crashing. That's just, <laughs> you've just put a canister on the egg. That wasn't like that. I thought You haven't one, fooled me. You haven't fooled me. They yeah. actually did that in uh, Indiana Jones and the uh, the one with Harrison Ford, uh, with um, Harrison Ford, with uh, uh, Sean Connery. <laughs> Sean so yeah, yeah. When, uh, yeah. Yeah, when they were meant to be hit and the biplane, and I remember just, you know, you see them and you kind of go, okay, you, it's not safe to fly, I get it, but I'm not really buying that the guy who's just wobbling the wings is is uh, in any distress. This one actually felt like that uh, that chopper was uh, was really doing some cool stuff. So so that was the shots that I liked for me. They just had well, that's a, that's a that's quite a land grab there, I have to say, Mike. Uh, the opening sequence, yes, was the most awesome i would agree but then i i would i would probably have to say the uh <laughs> the car chase i think the car chase was great i i was it was two supercars racing through rome um it was just so much fun and it had a lot of that kind of same kind of um uh, some of the stuff you were talking about todd i think too like with the you know the the actual with the the driving pod on there and getting the guys like so you get actual shots of them in the vehicles but then also the um the opportunity to use the the Aston Martin with the uh, you know the gadgets and uh, yeah. the flamethrower in the back, I thought was you know kind of fun. And then the uh, the driving up on the embankment along the um, the river was so cool. And the, I guess the, what the, the Tiber River, I guess it is, right, that goes through there. And, and um, I just thought that was so cool. And and uh, the uh, yeah, the driving sequence. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Is it made me think of a lot of to the all the great work that we've seen in the last few years in the um, uh, Fast and Furious movies. Right. Uh, all the mm-hmm. car work is right. always something that's so interesting, and um, it definitely had a lot of that flavor to it as well. But I thought it was really well done and uh, a lot of great effects work. Um, <laughs> so poor Todd gets to go. Okay. So you've lost the car sequence. And <laughs> I know. Lost well, I had, to, I had to jump in. I had to go in there. That's there. okay. I. I um... I actually, I hated the part where they were up on the on the wall uh, like it was a NASCAR race, because to me that's where the cars look the most fake. But that's a whole other uh, <laughs> story. And I also I know how that works, and they they would start to come down after a while. They're not going to be able to stay up there the whole time. But um, I'll let you have that. I, I actually have two that I liked the most, which was the uh, opening. Um, uh, one take shot. I, I yep. enjoy that. I, I enjoy Birdman for that main reason. I I just I love that uh, little cinematic trick that uh, directors are starting to do now, um, and I enjoyed it. And I would, if when I get the DVD, I will watch that over and over again, trying to look for the, uh, you know, where did they cut? Uh, you know, in real life, where did they do that in sections? Um, and I and I get a kick out of Bond walking along rooftops or fighting on, you know, remember when we rode the motorcycle along the uh, edge of the, uh, of the patio, uh, like yeah. uh, roof tiles. Yeah. I, I love that stuff. Um, I, and he just, he so casually does it. I, it's, 
I don't know. I get a kick out of that. I thought that was a lot of fun, and I enjoyed that shot immensely. Um, the, the other shot that I like was at the end of the film, which is when they blew up the MI6 building. Um, oh, yeah, I thought cool. thought that was done extremely well. I um, I bought that it – I mean it, it, it felt very real to me when it collapsed, dropping down, and, and how it blew up. Uh, even the, uh, the primer cord, uh, when it detonated, I don't know if you remember, it looked like little sus- – the red spaghetti strings as they light mm-hmm. – or as they explode, they actually do light up. They give off that flash of energy, which is what ignites it. And, um, I mean, I just bought that whole thing. I, I thought the initial explosion where the room explodes was a little a little bit too much, a um, little bit too much fire. Uh, should have been more smoke and debris. But the rest of that shot, I, I loved immensely. I thought it was really, really great and uh, had a great feel. And the sound, like I said, in this theater was excellent. And uh, I felt like I was outside of the building when it was uh, coming down. So those yeah. are my two. Yeah, I gotta say, um, I, I should also say, I thought the brain drill thing, while absurd in its construction, was actually really well implemented, <laughs> given that it was completely CG. Because, because I'm gonna confess here that while I also wince over uh, lemon lime juice in my um, my paper cuts, I, I also you know virtually hid under the chair when it was drilling into his forehead. <laughs> um, so clearly, I was caught up in the movie so much so that. Uh, that Ian Fails from our office was sitting beside me. Are you all right, Mike? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yes, yes, yes. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, yes, I couldn't watch that. Um, so that was, I, you know, hats off. Like they, they made it look real enough that I was uh, unable to kind of watch it. So if you guys tell me it was bad, it was only because I wasn't watching it to notice because I thought it was really good. But um, yes. Oh, don't like things going into people's eyes or into their heads. Mm. And it was, it's such a gross idea and like that whole, the machine. And I mean, he's, that's Christoph, Christoph Waltz, right? Is that his name? He's so ridiculous in that scene. Like the, the way that he, uh, you know, he's trying to be all sort of overly sinister. And that scene to me was the one that felt very Austin Powers. Yeah. I mean, it did because of the cat, right? But, but I'm not, but I'm now saying from a visual effects point of view, I did look yeah. at it and say, what a fake contraption. Like it. Yeah, no, I mean, it was, I was you know. going, ah. <laughs> but you know what I was looking for in that scene? And I think it maybe would have played off better is I wanted him, he was mad because he was the stepbrother that he hated. And, yeah. you know, daddy loved him and didn't love me. And I killed daddy and all that stuff. And there was no anger, there was sinister. And there was conniving. And I know how to do everything and you don't. But I wanted to see anger. I wanted to see that. I'm going to make you suffer. I want to make you pay. This is the worst thing I could think of. That's why I did this. I spent weeks, you know, wait, you know designing this thing and or months. And, and I didn't get that. I got, oh, I'm just going to flick the switches over here and yeah, it was drill like your head page. and nothing's going to happen. You know, and it, I wanted like him to pay. Okay. But here's the thing right. I'm going to say, right, is that like um, as good as this film was, and it was good, right, it's, it's just judged by me harshly because it's in – the shadow of Skyfall. Skyfall had, to your point, right, that right. sequence when he's there saying, um, mummy sent you and mummy doesn't love you. You remember that bit? When he was like kind of like mm-hmm. this, there was this homo erotica thing going on with, with Bond and he was tied up at the place before they shot the girl, you know, in that island after they got you off the boat. And it was just like such a good villain. And he was so weird, sicko. So there was that. There was the great stuff with the cinematography in Scotland with the flames and stuff. There was that. Was it? Was it? It was Skyfall that he was shot at the beginning of, wasn't it? You know, he's off the top of the train. Yes. 
another yeah. awesome sequence. Like it was just sequence after sequence in Skyfall. Well, and that one just, had a good theme song too. Ah, oh, it was just, you know, and there was more <laughs> Judy Dench. And Judy Dench is a terrific. I mean, as much as, you know, I think that Ralph Fiennes makes a, a good substitute and obviously she couldn't go on forever. Like there was such good stuff going on with Judy Dench in that role when she, you know, she, he turns up at her flat and he's like, she's like, well, we sold your flat because if we do when agents die and don't think you're going to stay here. Like she's just so cold and mean to him and he'll like do anything for her. Right. So I'm going to say is that like, as much as I, this film is good, if it hadn't been for Skyfall, I'd probably be, you know, on this podcast saying, I thought it was the greatest Bond film ever, but unfortunately Skyfall is just so good in my opinion. Anyway, Right, but I but I I really felt the anger or the hatred in that villain yeah. much more than I That's much more than I felt it. I mean, that villain he was like prob- really resenting it, right? Like everything, right? And, and, and more than almost any other film I've ever seen, where you know you always have the the evil villain, whether it's Star Trek or Star Wars or this or yeah. whatever. This guy, that guy, just like he creeped me out. I mean, he really, yeah, he scared me. He he seemed angry. He like he wanted to. And you know the teeth and the he had all these reasons to want to make oh, his life. Oh yeah, the teeth. Miserable. I forgot about those. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. whereas this guy was like, yeah, "Daddy loved you, and he didn't love me, and I'm going to yeah. make you." You know, it's. I, I did have that. I didn't feel that. No, I agree. That same emotional thing. And blowing um, yeah, up no, the no pathos. Did you, so? Have you guys <laughs> seen though? I have to ask. Have you guys seen the video that it's? It says that uh, James Bond hates disabled people. Like he loves to kill disabled people, and and it's it's a compilation video of Bond, like killing all these different Bond villains throughout the twenty four movies. And there's one where he drops, <laughs> he drops a guy in a wheelchair. Oh, down a in, down a giant yeah. like chimney smokestack yeah. at a power plant, and then you know you've got the Javier Bardem character in the last one who had the facial deformity, and then you've got this guy with the scar on his face, and. I don't know. It was just really, really funny. Like how when you look back on all these villains, it's true. Like they all have some kind of like, like there was guys that had like, you know, not that that's funny, but just it's funny in the context of this narrative, like the hook hands and stuff like that. I mean, it was so ridiculous. It's good. You'll have to find that one online somewhere. It is true that they, uh, for a long time, uh, associated somebody with some kind of deformity or uh, disability as being somehow... um, feeding a uh yeah, it's like phrenology or yeah. something like that old science that old pseudoscience where they they thought they could tell if someone was a criminal by the shape of their skull or something you know yeah. i mean it's kind of absurd but anyway but but i will say you know i mean like uh that's the trouble you have you make a really great film like skyfall and then where do you go to from there i think they probably decided to introduce the humor for that very reason but yeah i honestly the end of skyfall great film great film anyway so uh, thank you guys so much for being uh, on the show. Um, Todd, thank you so much for the huge contribution to the show that you've done. Indeed. We really appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Do you have a Twitter been feed a or a, uh, something that somebody could uh, latch onto if they wanted to uh, ping you? Uh, yeah. The, the, the one thing I do have is Twitter, and it's uh, my first initial T, and my last name's Skolton. So it's T-S-C-H-O-L-T-O-N. And uh, I, I don't post a lot there. Uh, due to my job, I have to be very careful what I post. But usually it's uh, effects related or, uh, you know, something of interest film related. Uh, so that's the way to uh, keep track of me if you like. 
Yeah, the way we've described you, it sounds like you are, in fact, a trained assassin who uh, we just got on the show to advise. But that's probably a pretty good uh, MO if we should just leave it then. And Matt, what about you? Uh, what about me? Uh, well, just... Oh, where uh, can you find yeah, me? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. I'm very punchy. But uh, let's see. I'm, I can be found in the School of the Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University in lovely Richmond, Virginia. And... Um, on the Twitters at Matt Wallen. Excellent. All right. Well, of course, you can find me as Mike Seymour on Twitter, but of course, I hang out at FX Guide. We've got some great stuff coming up, of course, that Star Wars film we were mentioning earlier in the show, but there are other great films, uh, not least of which is Hunger Games, which is out uh, in the week we're facing. So uh, good stuff coming, and I uh, hope you'll stay with us uh, as we ride out to the end of the year and then, of course, into Oscar season. Um, Todd, as always, thank you so much, and in particular uh, for today. And, uh, and Matt, thank you. Until next time, guys, I'm going to be uh, sitting with my uh, margarita, shaken, not stirred. See you guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. 